I like I listen to podcasts like Pod Save America, mm-hmm. and like I'm so anxious listening to it mm-hmm. that like I wait for them to do their ads. <laughs> like, yeah. like I can't I can't handle like the information that they're giving me because yeah. it's like I'm so overloaded, and like I, my mind just goes in so many different directions about like what if they're right and there's nothing we can do about it mm-hmm. or like you know it's just it's we're living in a crazy world man and like you know if you were anxious before the pandemic and before 2016 like it's right rough. Now it's, it's rough times out there hands. Welcome to the EduPunks Podcast. This is your host, Craig Biedemann, bringing you another conversation with an everyday educator and daily disruptor in the world of education and in the world at large. You know, that's who I like to talk to. This week, we're talking to my friend, Mike Fox. Mike Fox works at Bristol Community College, uh, and he does a lot of really good work around orientation, new student programs, and just like different types of services that support students at a community college. He's also had a much um, different uh, trajectory. Like the way he got into the field is kind of an interesting story. So I'm really excited for you to hear that. We get into a whole lot of stuff in this conversation, uh, which I'm really excited for. You get to hear a lot of different things and a lot of different perspectives. Um, We get a lot into authentic leadership, as well as how the pandemic has shifted the way we do our work. And then we end the conversation on a nice lengthy conversation on vinyl, which is lots of fun and uh, kind of just one of my favorite things when I have a vinyl guy to talk to, uh, or just a vinyl person in general, being able to talk to them about records um, on the show, which is really fun. And yeah, this week you also get to hear tunes from the new Hot Mulligan album called You'll Be Fine. It's out on No Sleep Records. You'll hear some more of those tunes a little bit later as well. And you just heard some, you'll hear some later. Hooray! Also, I like to mention that we are part of the ConnectEDU network. Go to connectedu.network to learn more about all the educational opportunities and content that is getting put out almost every single day by a bunch of different resources and human beings in higher education and just in education at large. Uh, So that's all I've got to start out the show. This is a lengthy episode, so I'm not going to waste too much time. Uh, But yeah, I'll be back in about a half an hour to tell you a little bit about voting. All right. Let's get to this conversation with Mike Fox.
How you doing, Mike Fox? I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing as well as anybody can be doing um, in month 872 of quarantine. Um, <laughs> you know, it's I every day that. it's something new. Every day it's something new. I thought. I thought this morning. Um, <laughs> I was like, you know, for me and maybe for other people, if there was like. If there was a, a catchphrase for, for this time that we're living in right now, it's like a really quiet, while you're chuckling, what the fuck? <laughs> like, it's just like, <laughs> like, oh man, the president just tweeted 50 times about something ridiculous in the last hour. Like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, he's he's like, tweeting like I every 10 st- seconds. <laughs> yeah, like I got, I got to stay home for the next like six months and not do anything. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, it's just like, it's just that low chuckle. Like, this is like every morning I wake up and like, that's just, those are the first words that come out of my mouth. Like, here we go again. You know, it's crazy. (laughs) I found myself uh, first thing in the morning at like 5 a.m. When I get up to go to the gym, I'll have like a little bowl of cereal and I just stare into the middle distance and in the kitchen, just right next to my sink. Like, there's nothing better than this right now. Yeah. Like this is yeah. what I have control of right now. I have control of one thing and I'm going to enjoy this one thing. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Cuz I feel feels, like we're out of control. Safe. Yeah, this yeah. feels safe. This, this feels is my blanket right, right now. now. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Um so Mike, we've been friends for a little while, but folks who have been listening to the podcast probably don't know you. Um can you tell folks a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you come from? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, we could start that. I grew up in a town that's now a second amendment sanctuary city. Do you want to, oh. you want to start there? What? Yeah, that's pretty wild, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but, uh, the town council, um, agreed to vote that, uh, if anybody comes to take your guns, the town of Burrowville, Rhode Island, they won't come to take their guns there because they are a second <laughs> A Second Amendment sanctuary city. I've never what? heard What does that, that mean? <laughs> no, it's because it doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. <laughs> That's amazing. So, but, yeah, so, um, yeah, it's super small town, like, just ridiculous. And uh, my parents still live there. Mm. And so, like, you know, they're not super far away from me. Like, I also live in Rhode Island. But, uh, you know, I've been, I've been working in higher ed for... Since 2007, what's that, like 13, almost 14 years now? Yeah. You know, started at a small private. You know, I got my first job without uh, sending a cover letter. That's, that's, uh, I think you've well told me my, this story. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, I was like a freelance video editor, and uh, I just really didn't like, like, working on my own. Like, I didn't like editing other people's weddings. Like mm-hmm. it's just like video that I didn't shoot. Like it's, I hated it. I was just doing like little gigs here and there. Um, and so, but I had a really cool experience in college. Like I was super involved. I did like radio show and uh, programming board stuff. And I was sort of everywhere. So um, I was on like, I think it was like monster.com. Like it wasn't even like higher ed jobs or anything. I didn't even know like this higher ed existed like mm-hmm. as a thing. Um, no master's degree, nothing. And like, it was just this little, uh, it was called, my first gig was called the coordinator of performing arts activities. And uh, so I sent my resume, like just highlighting all the stuff that I had done in college. And I got the call for the interview. And like, and I realized before I did the phone interview, like, 
I don't even have a background in performing arts. So like, not <laughs> only do I like not have a background in like, I don't have a master's. I don't have like the, all that stuff. Like, but like I did my interview and I sort of like talked about my experience and how like I could, you know, bring that experience to help new students. And like, that was like the, that was the, the wave that I, that I rode and, you know, got my first gig and, uh, you know, I spent, but I spent nine years at that first institution, Really, like, which is, yeah. And like, I had a lot of friends who, um, you know, I went to college with that were sort of doing the, like, I'm going to get as many experiences as possible, as soon as possible. Like I want to work in res life for two years and then I want to do this and I want to be in conduct and I want to be in student activities. And I want to like have all these different experiences. So as I, you know, my resume is like sort of padded as I sort of move up, but like, I don't know, maybe it was rare for me that like mm -hmm. I had a job that I loved and yeah. like it was an, ex it was an environment that like really worked well for me. I loved the students. I loved the work I did. Like I sort of moved up like the little ladder that I had there. Um, and it was great. And, uh, you know, so I learned a lot though, you know, just working with, um, with the students that I was with, I had some great mentors. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, like, I guess I'm trying to like diplomatically no, I describe like what happened, but like, <laughs> I then got to the point and like, you know, exactly what I'm about to talk about mm -hmm. because you are very close to somebody who went through the same thing where like, yep. I got to the point where I was a direct report with someone that, that he and I were just not on the same wavelength. And so, um, I learned, um, really quickly, like what I need out of a supervisor and like, and how that just wasn't working. So, um, by that point, my, my wife and I had moved to Providence. And so I got a gig down here working with like new students and stuff at a, at a mid-sized public and, and, uh, you know, and then an opportunity came up at a community college and, uh, I've always wanted to work at a community college and, um, you know, work with those students there. So you know, that's sort of where I landed now, but, um, you know, it's, it's been a, it's been a pretty wild ride. I've gotten to work with a lot of different people that like are now like super close and friends and mentors and a lot of students that I've stayed in contact with. And I think that that's like the most important thing for me, like just like, building those relationships, you know, and uh, I love that call when you get from a student there, they're like, Hey, I got this gig. And, uh, you know, I'm using all the things that, you know, I never realized were a thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> like all the skills that like, you always like sort of like talked about, but I never really realized that they would be like important. Yeah. I'm using all those right now. <laughs> like, so it's cool. Uh, but I, I will say that like, you know, in my journey, I did end up getting a master's degree because obviously you need that. Mm -hmm. But I got my master's degree at Leslie university in their master's in education program, but it's in a program called community art, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And um, basically it's like um, it's, education and like educational theory and like you know the bare bones stuff that like you know comes with that but like it's more about infusing creativity into curriculum so like on top of you know you know the work that you're doing you're really you're working with guys like you know Elliot Eisner's work and John Dewey and like Paulo Freire and like how you know creativity and like experience in the world can like just just sort of shape you as a human, um, which is really cool. Like it's a lot of like, 
like we talked a lot about like Reggio Emilia and like Waldorf education and stuff like that. But like the really cool thing was that like in my program and my cohort, I had like a person who like worked at a nursing home, a person who worked at a museum, a person who worked, you know, in elementary ed, preschool, and like all these different, like all of us came from completely different experiences, which is cool to like sort of, you know, work together to be like, you know, the foundation of what we're doing is sort of the same, yeah. um, you know, because we're just trying to like educate students and like have them be able to see themselves in the world and their place. And like, how can, you know, you know, we make that happen. So it was like, it, it was cool. So like, I definitely take that approach with everything that I'm doing. Like I try to have, you know, every aspect of the work that I do, like be creative in one way or another, yeah. um, you know, or have a creative component at least. Well, and that's something that I've always like, cause we came into knowing each other like five or six years ago, I think. Um, and yeah, I think so. um, when we first met, I was like, Oh, this guy, like, I like this guy's style. Like you, you reminded me of someone that I would meet back home in Oregon and like, you just had that vibe <laughs> and maybe it's the flannel with ties, but I think or the plaid with ties, but like <laughs> right. that was very much the style that I'm like, yeah, I get this tattoos. I get this. I get, I might understand where this guy's coming from. And um, that was something that I kind of always like admired and like even your leadership style is like, you kind of like let people, um, learn as they do. And I, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. You talked a little bit about how you like got that from your masters, but can you talk a little bit about that philosophy that I think I saw sprouting from the, the work that you did as a, as a supervisor in knowing that you <laughs> learned quickly who you like to be supervised by? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, whenever I'm in an interview, and they're like, how would you describe your supervisor style? Um, you know, or if I'm like hiring in a grad or any, anything where like I am like responsible for another person, you know, I always tell people that I need to know what, how you work best. And I need to know, um, you know, what you want to get out of this. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to just tell somebody what to do, like, cause that doesn't, like, what if, what if they don't want to do that? Like, or if, or what if I tell them how, how to do something and it just doesn't work with their work style? Like, so like, I like, so if I'm hiring a new grad, like, if you don't tell me like what you want to get out of this position, like while you're here, like, mm -hmm. it's not going to benefit either of us, you know, like, because like, especially with like, you know, new professionals and everything like that, like, you know, I gotta, I want to know, I want to know how, how you work. Like I, I tell my staff all the time, like, you know, if, if you're not like, in, let's say you're not feeling a hundred percent, like you need a mental health day, like you're going to have to take that because mm -hmm. like, if, if you're not at a hundred percent or if you're not mentally there, like you are totally worthless to me. Like <laughs> I, you know, like I want, Valid. like, cause I just want, I just want that. I want the work to, to feel like genuine. I want it to be valuable. Um, so that's just the approach that I take, you know, with everyone, um, regardless of who they are. So like, you know, getting to know people on like a human level and like, you know, who they are and how they work. Like, I think that that's, that's just where you have to start with something like mm -hmm. that. Right. Like, and you know, I, I take that sort of in education too. Like, 
you know, there's this um, in, uh, I think it's in Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. Mm -hmm. There's this quote that's basically like, no one is born fully formed. It's like the way that you experience the world is how you're shaped. And like, I think about that, like, in, in jobs too, right? Like, you can't, you can't just come into a new gig, especially in higher ed, like thinking that you know everything about this new experience that you're going to get, because like those students are different. You know, Mm -hmm. what they're, what, what they're bringing to the campus is completely different. So like knowing who you are and how you sort of fit into this. And that's why like, you know, my first gig was so great because like, you know, I fit really well. Like I was like an educator for those students, but I was learning from them every single day too. Mm. You know, and I think that like a lot of people had that same experience, Um, you know, and it's not to say that I'm not getting that like same piece, you know, in this, in other gigs that I've had since, or the gig that I'm getting now, like, I mean, at the difference between a small private 50 to $60,000 a year, you know, school in in Boston versus a community college is like, it's wild, man. Like, and we can, we can definitely dive a little bit more into that, but um, I don't know. Like, I just, I feel like we're all humans and like, we just, if we just treat each other like humans as like when we're supervisors or whatever our role are is on campus and like, just sort of know each other, like we're just all going to work together a Mm -hmm. lot better, you know? Yeah. And I feel like something that, kind of goes along that along with that is how um how siloed some higher ed gets in in not knowing other people across campus because i know that like your time at your first institution you were like everyone came to you and you knew like where to send everyone because you had all these connections and i feel like (laughs) there are there might also just been the benefit of a tiny campus but um I know that there is sometimes where there's a lot of that blockage of even not wanting to um, get to know everyone across the campus or even have that humanity in other, like see that humanity in other people because higher ed is, the turnover rate in higher ed is so huge. And Mm -hmm. that is something that I've always like, that I've noticed a lot at UMass Boston is we just, there's a revolving door in higher ed to some degree. And I feel like there's just a, there is a movement. There is a movement of people just kind of doing that bouncing around and you're starting to do a little bit of bouncing around, but I think yours is for a different reason, for different reasons. Um, Can you talk about that? The, the transitions that you've had to make and even like, because you've also had a recent through line of doing like new student programming correct and like family programming and stuff can you talk yeah, about so, how that uh, that evolution became a thing for you yeah so totally so um i mean i've been sort of avoiding saying like the schools that i've worked at but it's very like i worked at yeah. leslie university rhode island college and now i'm at bristol community college mm-hmm. um so um yeah getting back to you i forget what you just i forget how you just worded it but like I've worked in orientation for so long that like, even when I come to a new place and orientation is such a collaborative effort for the, mm-hmm. for the entire campus. And like, somebody says to me like, Oh, this place feels silent. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, and maybe it's just because I'm out there like, you know, working with so many different people throughout the entire year to yeah. build up to this one collaborative program. Like, 
I'm always just like shocked when people are like, oh, this place feels siloed. Like, and I get that some, some like jobs are siloed. Like it is what it is. Like there are people that just sit in their cubicle. Like our data folks are like all these other people. Like they just have their, their gig that like doesn't really, you know, work well with collaboration. Um, but I don't know. I just like, when I, I love when people are like, this place feels siloed because like I, I, I personally never have that experience because mm-hmm. I put myself out there to get, to get it done. So, um, I, when I left Leslie, I left for like supervisory reasons and all sorts of stuff. Like, but I wasn't like actively looking for a job at the time. Um, and, but my wife and I had moved to Providence. So for those of you who are not familiar the commute from Providence to Boston <laughs> is um, it's a nightmare. So yeah. it's like two plus hours every day, no matter what time you leave to go like around 45 to 50 miles. Um, the train we, we lived when we first moved to Providence, we, we lived really close to the train station, but the train was about $400 a month. Um, so for my wife and I to both, so she, my wife also works in Cambridge. She still does. Um, for, but for us to both get to work every month, it would have been $800. And I'm like, well, this, that doesn't like, I can't spend $800 to get to work. <laughs> like no. that's not, that's not part of the plan. Right. So, um, so a gig opened, um, at Rhode Island college that was, um, it was just new student programs, but it had a little bit of a component of like the academic side of the house because, um, orientation lived in academic advising or that area. So it worked well for me one, because I had had this like really great experience where I had done all sorts of different things. You know, you're at a small private, the student activities office is everything from orientation to commencement, right? Like, and everything in between. So I got the opportunity to go to a larger institution with more sort of support for different types of activities around the campus. And I could start focusing my work you know, on orientation, you know, really, you know, like I had the opportunity to build a new program, which was really valuable for me. And like, as an added bonus, I got this like academic advising component and academic side of the house that I had never gotten before. Mm -hmm. So I could sort of like um, work with students and their experience through a completely different lens, which I was really excited to do. Um, And so that transition, um, what was great for me because I could take all my skills and like now start to focus the work. And I got to like really like build some really cool programs there. Um, We eventually developed like an entire new student programs area, um, you know, which is part of a new division of student success, which was really cool to sort of be a part of, of creating that program. Um, You know, so I got to do some really great things. but, you know, in the back of my head, you know, I was like, all right, I've had this small private, I've had this like mid-sized public, you know, eventually I think that my skills, you know, can uh, like really be beneficial to an enrollment management area. Like that's mm-hmm. just how my brain works. Like I think really strategically. And um, so I think that enrollment management is definitely my, my next or last you know, step. Um, so I was like, you know, I would love to do 
to get an experience at a community college. You know, a lot of people say like, you know, once you go to a community college, like that's just where you stay. Like, it's just, Mm. you, you just, you, you love it. You love the students, you love the work. And, um, so when the gig opened in, in, at Bristol, um, you know, I just, I hopped on it because, you know, it would be a brand new experience for me. Um, you know, I, I had, I had, I had been prepared to work with, um, you know, a different kind of a a student that's going to college for different reasons, you know, in my transition from Leslie to Rhode Island college. And then I think that that really benefited me moving to a community college. Um, because I mean, there's, you run the full gamut of like, why are you here? And, you know, um, and what's, what's your, what experience are you bringing? Um, so I, I think that, you know, my, so a lot of people will do their transitions, um, you know, to pad their resume. And I guess that I'm sort of doing that in reverse, but like, um, I just, I want to, I want to work with as many different and types of students, students that are coming from different experiences, you know, as I can, you know, so that way, you know, it's never, you're never going to have every skill to work with every student who comes from every experience. Like it's just not possible, but like, you know, I think that I'm building, you know, my own personal toolbox to just like, to, to, to hopefully be, you know, a valuable employee for, you know, for students to, to work with. I mean, that's just my ultimate goal. Yeah, that's like super admirable, because I know that um, there are some folks who um, will get comfortable, stick around for a while. And sometimes there's that um, Sometimes folks do that for the reason of like not necessarily wanting to give up their spot or give up their role or move on to something new. Um, but I feel like, like you said, doing your career in reverse almost, um, because I think you're going to find the the sweet spot eventually. And then you're just going to, you're going to ride it out. And like, I mean, everyone kind of right. does that. And like, I know that I'm in a spot where I love my job. I've been there for five years, um, which is wild to think about. And um, or coming up on five years, but, um, I don't see myself leaving, but I have also heard that from plenty of people that, um, a job can be that for you for so long where you're like, I don't see myself ever leaving. I don't see myself ever leaving. Why would I ever leave this job? Um, but then at some point, and I'm fearing that I might be coming up to uh, a crossroad of is staying here going to make me happy all of the time. And then I have those moments where um, I love my student population so much. And I'm mm-hmm. uh, being at Rhode Island, when you were at Rhode Island College, you, you brought me there a couple of times, which like, again, cannot thank you more. <laughs> that student population reminds me so much of my own. And um, that's the one thing that keeps me so close to wanting to stay. Even when I have the back of my mind, I'm like, am I going to get bored with this? Uh, do I have enough room to move up? Things like that. Um, so I'm, I'm honestly curious about how your transitions, not even just from institutions, but from like dealing with different, the different student populations specifically moving into this role with community college students. Um, what are you finding as the, the, I guess like you've only, you've been in the role, what a year? 
now? Uh, I started. Well, it's it's crazy. Right? Oh so yeah, I started well, yeah. in like the middle the middle of November of 2019. So I was on campus for like a month. Yeah. Then then we had our break, and then I was like, we did all this planning and like all this stuff, and we were on campus for like maybe a month and a half, and then we went remote. So like te- like so I've almost been at Bristol for a year now, but I was really only on campus for like two months maybe it's like so the strangest my question i'll shift my yeah. question what are you learning about students in the remote space that you maybe that's kind of surprised you or anything like that how is this remote space working for you in that regard yeah so we decided we were still on campus like in the beginning of march and we had like a staff meeting where we were like we can do our job remote like we know that this is not going to be great um but like we can we can do our work remote and so we sort of sort of started planning but in the to kind of get back to both of your questions you know the students that i'm working with and and how we are you know serving those students when we when we first went remote our first priority was the bottom of Maslow's pyramid, right? So mm-hmm. we we operate our food pantry on campus. We do our mobile food market. We connect students to resources in all four of our areas, you know, whether that's SNAP or housing or all these different things. Like we're sort of the one-stop shop for students to get connected to those resources. So our initial thought was, you know, how do we make sure that students are safe? How do we make sure that they have housing? How do we make sure that you know, they have food that they need. So like, we were like, we can, we can run virtual programs and like do whatever for, for fun. Like, but that's going to be on the back burner right now because we need to create, you know, a resource guide for students. We need to make sure that, you know, our, our partners in the area, like the United way um, and, you know, other, other partners, you know, we stay connected to them to know exactly what's going on because like, you know, we could, we could have a list of, of food pantries, you know, on our website, but you know, during COVID are those food pantries operational? Like yeah. we need to know that information, you know, like what, what's going on with shelters? Like, are they, are shelters going to be socially distanced? Like, you know, what's their capacity? Like all those things. So we spent the first couple of weeks of remote work working on like a huge guide, you know, for students, we called it, um, I think it's like remote Bristol or like Bristol in the community maybe. Um, and it had everything that a student would need to know just, just to, I mean, I hate using the word survive, but like, it's really like survive during the pandemic. Right. So like, uh, we were constantly updating it with, you know, new information we were getting about food pantries, you know, all the information about at home Wi-Fi and discounts and all those things. Like, U-Haul was, had like some sort of like a discount, like if people needed to like store stuff, you know, for a while. So like it was just this, and then it had like different things to do with your kids at home and like different resources like Scholastic and National Geographic for Kids and like all these different things like were sort of all housed in this one um, piece that we had. So um, we, we immediately um, – joined a group in the Fall River area. So Bristol has campuses in, in uh, four different areas of Bristol County. Um, so we, we did a lot of our work in the Fall River area, which is the, the largest area of, of, it's our largest campus, and we have a large population there. Um, but, you know, we needed to make sure that, like, we were serving all the students in all four areas as well. So we jumped on a call 
you know, every week that was hosted by the United Way, which had, you know, at the start, like hundreds of different community partners, just updating folks and like creating resources online for people. And like, you know, it was crazy. Like, and then like on top of that, then the unemployment stuff started coming Mm -hmm. down and like, you know, people started like, our students were giving us like so many different things to think about that we never would have thought. Right. So we have a lot of students who are on subsidized housing and their that housing is subsidized based on their income. But did anybody think like, well, now if that person becomes unemployed and now they're getting this $600 stimulus check each week, now their income bumps them over. Mm -hmm. Like what? So like, these are the types of things that like, you know, it's not like I, you know, at my previous institutions, I didn't have to think about those things. Like obviously like, you know, food insecurity is, is huge on every campus across the country and all these things are, are, are issues. But like, you know, we had to put these issues at the forefront because if we were the food pantry for, you know, hundreds of students each week to grab lunch, you know, how are those students going to get lunch now? You know, so we had to, we had to really think about those things and, and that's what we did. Uh, we do a monthly mobile food market. I was actually there yesterday. Um, and we shifted it to be a drive through, um, you know, where, you know, 400 to 500 students and community members come and get a month's worth of groceries, you know, so, you know, it used to, in non COVID times, we would set up all the different items people would come through just like a grocery store. Like, Hey, here's my onions. Here's my carrots. You know, we partnered with the greater Boston food bank. They bring a huge truck on the second Thursday of every month, but we couldn't do that anymore. We couldn't do it that way. So like we completely shifted um, kudos to everyone in our, in our department, just sort of coming together and figuring out like, how can we do this socially distanced so that it's safe for the volunteers who are there, but also safe for everybody who's coming because like, on our college campus, like we can't do anything unless it is, you know, approved all the way up the board, you know, and that it's like, and by all the way up the board, like all the way to the governor and like everything that he's telling us. So, you know, in March, it was really hard to, to figure out how do we get 400 people to come to our campus? You know, like it's, 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 but we did it. And now it's like a complete drive through. So, Folks just sign up, they get a time to come, they pop their trunk and a full box of food goes into their, to their trunk every month, you know? So like to get back to your original question, you know, once we sort of had a handle on where folks can get food in the community, you know, where can they get different resources for everything that they need from healthcare to shelter to, to everything, like how can they access Wi-Fi if they don't have it at home? You know, it's really hard for a student to to be an online student if they don't have access to Wi-Fi. I don't know if you knew that. Like, it's yeah. it's virtually impossible. They're very difficult. <laughs> like, yeah, and it's just like, and so those are the things that we sort of figured out first. You know, and then once we sort of had a handle on that and sort of had a handle on everything that was going out, like, you know, we ran some virtual programs and like we did. We literally did a. I hosted a virtual open mic night on Zoom. Um, and it was just me spinning records like the whole time like, nice. for like two hours. It was just like, nobody joined me. So it was just, if I would <laughs> oh, have recorded it, it would have literally just been me sitting there, like flipping a record every like couple of minutes, but it was fun. Cause like, I was just going to be doing that anyway. So I might as well yeah. put a zoom camera on it. But like, you know, we, ch- we tried a bunch of things and, um, 
you know, and that sort of helped us, you know, coming into this semester. We now have, we, we, we have a new initiative called Programming in a Box, where um, we basically took all, we, we, over the summer, we looked at what were we going to do in the fall? Who were we going to work with? Um, you know, what sort of events were we going to host that were like resource related events, all those different things. And we took all the materials that we would have given to students, you know, at those things and put them into one box. Mm-hmm. Um, and students registered and they like, we physically either mailed them a box or they came to campus and like, we sort of mm-hmm. handed it to them. So like, obviously the election and, you know, civic engagement um, is what's going to be huge this semester. Um, so like all of that information that a student would need to know is now in that box, you know, we're running a social justice series on campus. Like that information is inside this box. We were going to do a galaxy jar DIY project. So inside of their box is a Mason jar with a couple of paint pots, some cotton balls, and I think glitter. So now we can do a virtual program, you know, that's a DIY. Let's come together and like do this fun activity, maybe with your kids at home but they have all the materials that they need. They don't have to go find a Mason jar. So I don't know if you know, but there is a national shortage on Mason jars. Because I guess when the pandemic started, like everybody just started like canning stuff. Like I had, I had to like, I had to hunt down these Mason jars, but you know, so now like, now we we've connected students to the resources that they need. We're, we we can continue to be that resource. Um, But they also have like, a lot of like hundreds of students have like these little projects that they can do at home with their kids. Um, you know, and, and, but the, the, the sort of silver lining of all this is this is just how we're going to program from now on. Mm-hmm. Like we're just going to get all the materials in advance, you know, and say, if you want this box and just be able to do these programs with us from anywhere, that's great. You know, you can have it for semesters to come. And like, obviously we'll still do like in person on campus, like, you know, take a break from studying days and distractions and all that stuff. But like we mailed a box to Cocoa Beach, Florida. Yeah. Like that's an online student that has literally never been able to get involved in anything on campus because they are 100% a remote student who lives a thousand miles away. And now they can have all that stuff, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think that we've had, we've had a large online population for a very long time that like, we in, you know, the student engagement world haven't really thought too much about, um, you know, granted I've only been there since November and my boss has only been there since like May before me. So like, um, you know, it's not like we've really had a large opportunity to sort of dive into some of this stuff, but you know, now we've got a new model thanks to COVID that like we can get more students engaged from wherever they are, you know, and it just makes our programming more accessible moving forward. All right, it is time for the quick break from the podcast just to bring you some information about voting. The election is coming up very soon. Uh, As you know, we're very left-leaning on this podcast, so I would tell you to please help us defeat Donald Trump in this upcoming election because holy shit, the world has become a very bleak place over the last four years, especially within the last year. Um, There's chaos out in the streets. There is um, a pandemic that is wrecking people's lives, and there is a leadership that does not know what the fuck they're doing. So um, on my end, I believe that the the best place to get information right now is a website called Vote Save America. 
Go to votesaveamerica.com. It's ran by the folks who run Cookie Media, Pod Save America, all those great podcasts that they oversee. Um, Pod Save the People, Love It or Leave It, Keep It. There's a whole bunch of great podcasts that are under there. Um, under their umbrella. You can go there. You can check uh, all the ways that you can make a plan, um, knowing uh, who to vote for and what to vote for in your state, um, and even volunteer opportunities so that you can check out um, the most that you can do to make sure that you're doing your part to make sure that folks are getting out their vote and having their voice heard. Um, It's super important this year, probably as it's said almost every year, Every election year, but this is the most important election of our lifetime, and I think it is incredibly valuable to use all the resources we can to make sure that we are doing our part to make sure that folks get out there and stop Donald Trump and stop Mitch McConnell, stop Lindsey Graham. There are elections in those states that are uh, making it possible for those two individuals in the Senate to lose their roles. And I would love that. That would be really fantastic. Um, but, um, we have, we have to see, we have to get out there and do it. We have to get out and vote. We can't be complacent. We got to make sure that we are doing our part. That's what I've got. Uh, votesaveamerica.com. Uh, please go there, check out all the information they've got. All right, let's get back to this conversation with Mike Fox. Now I'm curious. Um, you're a music guy. (laughs) <laughs> a little bit um uh, yeah and you um you dabbled in doing some like bringing live events to 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 shows or to to your campuses and stuff like that can you talk about like the importance of entertainment on a college campus and just how that has also like influenced you as a person uh throughout like your life like bringing that into your campus's spaces yeah i think I think that my passion for music and like my love of like all things sort of live, whether it's like a poetry reading or like a live art installation or comedy, you know, I think that that has, you know, sort of informed my approach to, to entertainment on a college campus. You know, I, I, that's how I got started. Like I was on the Mm -hmm. concerts committee at my undergrad you know, when, you know, my senior year as the concerts president, we brought nine, nine concerts to campus, you know, everything from, you know, the perceptionists, um, to Everclear mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to my chemical romance, right? Like, and sort of everything in between, um, you know, so I just, you know, I think that students, I know that it's important, but I don't know if students know that it's important. And I don't know if I figured out the formula to, to tell students like, Hey, this is a, this is valuable because you're a student here and you have access to this. Like, and I don't think that that just, it's just entertainment. Like I think that there's so many different resources that students just don't take advantage of when they're in college. Like I'm thinking about like counseling and mental health resources and like, you know, um, career stuff and like anything related to experiential education. Like, and I don't think that anybody's figured out the formula to be like, by the way, this is super important for you. So you should do it. Like, I remember like we had, I don't remember what show it was, but like we used to do these little shows when I was at Leslie in our theater. And like, you know, now they're just like such big names. Like we did like Lucius um, and we did um, like Nat Baldwin and, um, um, 
I'll, I'll think of some other names, but like, I remember like doing these shows in our little theater that held under 200 people and they're just like amazing shows. And there were students in our student center, literally right outside the door that were just sitting there. Yeah. Like on a Thursday, like yeah. not like just, you could do what you're doing right now, just in here mm-hmm. and like experience this live music. So like, I remember one time, I don't remember what show it was, but I went to the sound guy that we had and I was like, hey, do you have like a little monitor that we could run a cord? Because there were all these students sitting right outside. And I was like, let's just run a speaker out into the, the little quad area and just like, and we'll just be like, hey, just so you know, this is happening live right here. This isn't like the radio. Yeah. So like we ran it outside and like the, and then like, so students were like, oh, this sounds kind of cool. Like, let me go in. Like, it's just, it's one of those things where like, you could bring the biggest band in the world. Like mm-hmm. whoever is the biggest one right now that I probably don't know who they are. Like they could, they could come to campus and students just aren't going to go mm-hmm. because one, they've, they've got something else to do or two, like they don't know who the person is mm-hmm. or, you know, or, or there's a hundred reasons why students aren't going to come. But like that, to me, that's just so ingrained as a part of the college experience and the student experience, because that was where, like how I defined my college by like the events that I went to and all these different things. Like when somebody asked me like, how, like, how was college for you? I was like, yeah, you know, I was like pushing, you know, gig boxes, you know, in the middle of the night, I'd load out a show, like with a bunch of like union, like, you know, like that's just what, that's what college was for me. Like, you know, I, and so I think that there are a lot of students who get it and there are the students that, and those are the students that are involved. And like, the, but the, for me, like, I still struggle with like, they're the same students every single time. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that a lot of people see that, like, you've got your students that, you know, I'm sure that like are always there. Like they might, they might even work for you as work yeah. study students sometimes, like they sort of make that evolution. Um, but like, I learned really quickly in my career that like, I don't take it personally anymore. Like when I first started, you know, we didn't really have like a super strong like programming board or anything like that. So like I was doing a lot of the work to sort of like get that started. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and I would take it personally when like I spent a lot of time, like putting, putting a program together, whether it's educational or all these other things. And, um, and when no one showed up, like I took it personally and like, and now I just have to realize that like the opportunity is there for students. And as long as we do our job to like get the word out there and, and try and say like, Hey, here are the reasons why you should do this. Like students have to make their own choice, mm-hmm. you know, cause that's what college is all about too. Right. It's making, it's making choices. And it's like, well, I don't know. It's a long story short, man. Like I haven't figured out the formula yet. No, and like, I, I don't expect, I don't expect, you've been in the field, however long you've been in the field, it's hard to find that, that sweet spot of who we're not going to, we're not going to get every student. We're not, we're just not. Right. And um, one of the things that I think is important there is like, you still just have to continue making the opportunities there for them. And in my undergrad, right. when I was running our program board, we, use the we use the campaign of choose your own adventure uh Mm -hmm. at college and we basically like we're like we're going to be doing all of these things this year come to some of them do some of these things whatever this is going to be your year to try to experiment and learn new things and 
do all this new stuff. Yep. And it's kind of, it's going to be on you to choose this adventure because we're, we're going to do it whether you come or not. And we want to make sure that it's available for y'all. And I granted, I was at a huge under like undergrad institution and we did have pretty good turnouts for things, but it was also like, like you said, like you end up getting a very, you get a, end up, you end up getting like a sweet spot of students that are like as committed to it as you are to some degree. Um, but that's still not getting like a broader scope that you would hope for. Um, but one of the things that I found, especially on my campus is, and I'm sure you felt this maybe at Rick or even at Bristol now, um, the lives of our students are so chaotic isn't the right word, but it's the only word that's coming to my mind. They have such yeah. complicated lives that even as a, com- on a massive commuter campus, it's hard for us to program like later in the day or um, even at night. So like I've found that it's, it's one of my, my, my biggest headaches is trying to book consistent programming because I don't know if the money we're putting into it or the effort we're putting into it is going to be, um, generally worth it and that's a hard thing to have to like weigh especially at a campus where they're looking at all of the money that we spend to try to justify our existence as an office and as a department so it's really kind of a pain to have to like weigh both of those things at the same time you know yeah i completely agree um especially now working at a community college um you know just always keeping in your mind, like what these students could potentially be experiencing, you know, somewhere else, which is why we focused on like barriers and needs, you know, and that's at the forefront of the work that we do, Um, you know, and the sort of program sort of become a secondary thing after that, like with like leadership and all those different things. But yeah, like I can't, you can't run a program at night, you know, but Mm -hmm. like, but you also have a huge population of students who are only there at night. Right. So, you know, the, the, the mom or dad or, you know, person who's working nine to five, you know, like they might bring their kids to, to class with them. And like, you know, do we have like some sort of a fun activity for, for kids, like some sort of a daycare on campus? Like it all comes back down to like, you know, I think that students need, you know, support you know, for their own experience. And then if they get, you know, a fun project to do with their kid or like just them to sort of distract them, I think that that's icing on the cake. But like the ability for a a student to be able to be successful, you know, is is at the core. And I think for a lot of folks, and that success could mean so many different things for so many different people. Like, uh, you know, at a commuter college campus now, like, are is success that a student graduates or is it success if a student spends a semester with us and then persists on to a four year? Mm-hmm. Like to me, that's successful. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, obviously we want as many students and like the advantages to 60 credits, you know, before you go into a four year and the money you'll save and like the experience that you'll get is, is, is crazy. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, success just looks so different now. Like when I was at Leslie, like, you know, we could program in the middle of the night because everybody was there and Mm -hmm. like, you know, or not, I shouldn't say everybody was there because half of our 
population was commuter, but you know, we had 900 students who were there on, physically on campus, and then another you know, couple of hundred students that I called resumuters that were like no longer living in our housing, but they were living in the immediate area. Yeah. So like, obviously you're familiar with you know, Cambridge and Boston. So we used to have um, a campus in, in Kenmore Square right outside of Fenway Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, a ton of our students, if they, if they were, so it was our art school. So if they were in the art school, they would go to, um, they would have to commute from campus in Cambridge, you know, on a bus like that ran on the half hour and mm-hmm. it was a pain in the ass. So they would, when they were sophomores, juniors and seniors would just move to the Alston Brighton area. You know, it's right up the street for them. So now they could just take the T, you know, and it's just much simpler. They can sort of do their studio work on their own schedule. So we started to say like, we have a huge population of students that live in Alston, Massachusetts. Why can't we program there, mm-hmm. you know, for them? So like, what if we hosted a trivia night at a local restaurant there mm-hmm. so that students could, so we were just literally meeting students where they were, you know, and was it successful? No, it wasn't super successful, but a couple of people came and it was, yeah. it was, you know, meeting them where they are. It's like, it's no different than any other program where like you put all this work into it and like not a lot of people show up because it's a great experience for the people who do come, you mm-hmm. know? So I think that, you know, meeting students where they are and whether that's like in a different physical location or when they're coming to campus, like, you know, that's gotta be at the forefront of the work that we do. Um, but you're, but it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to find that sweet spot or to find, like, if you do something in the daytime, what's the component that could translate to the night? Like, is it a, is it a a physical program that you run on campus with some passive programming, you know, you know, throughout the rest of the day and on, on all your different campuses. Right. So we, when I first got to Bristol, one of my first days here, I was like, we did a, a hunger banquet. Um, so we did a hunger banquet on one of our campuses. I don't know if you've ever um, experienced a hunger banquet, but it's, it's cool. It's, um, it's just about like food insecurity and like you're sitting at a particular table and like it's like low, medium, and high income. And like mm-hmm. if you're at the high income, you know, and I'm not, I'm not getting all the details right, but like if you're at the high income, you get like a full plate of food and the medium, you get like some of that food and low, you get nothing. Mm. And so it's about like, you know, it's, it's a visual of like poverty and food insecurity, you know, around the world. And so I started saying like, well, we can't, we could run this program on each campus, but what if we did it in the future? And like, we did, we did this we did the physical banquet on one campus, but then we did a food drive that's related to it on another campus. Mm-hmm. And, or we did like some, a poster campaign about food insecurity and resources on another campus. So like we basically take like, what is the, the theme of what we're doing and why we basically take the why of what we're doing. And we say, how can we meet the needs of students and meet students where they are on all of these different campuses, but still get them to that why, right? And that can look really different You know, we have four different campuses with four completely different, um, with four completely, what's the right word here? Um, they, they're, they're just different environments. They're different experiences for students. They're different students who come there for different reasons. Um, 
And, you know, and we have to embrace that, right? Like when I was, when I was at Leslie, we had an undergraduate education, you know, psychology, human services school. And then we had a down and dirty art school. Like literally it was dirty, (laughs) like, which was great. Right. So, you know, we had to like, we used to call it like bridging and bonding where like, you know, we have to bridge these two communities together, but we have to realize that these students are getting completely different experiences and we need to, and we need to like focus on that. And yeah. so like, yeah, it's cool to like, be like, Hey, this is for everybody. But like all those populations also need something that's specific for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's been super important. Um, you know, as I've sort of, you know, begun my work at the community college, you know, to be like this program could be very specific to this population, you know, and everybody could benefit from it, but like, we're going to really focus on our, you know, single parent working nine to five students at night, you know, or, you know, our ESL students. Um, so there's a lot of different, like, we're just, we're basically every day just sort of brainstorming new approaches mm-hmm. to, to work with all these different populations. Yeah. And just as you were explaining, like the different experiences that folks get across the campuses, it reminds me of like the different UMass experiences that are out there too, because a specific set of students go to UMass Amherst, like a very specific type of students, very specific type, go to Lowell, go to Dartmouth, go to Boston, and go, and then very specifically go to the medical school. And so there's, when I talk to students who've gone to like one or the other campuses or whatnot there and they come to Boston, they're like, this is a much different experience than I've had really anywhere else. And um, it's always like kind of eye-opening to me that like no one has like a very specific or very um, no two students have a, have a similar UMass experience and having gone to graduate school at UMass Amherst, like I know a lot of that student population pretty well. Um, Like I, I can kind of like appreciate the fact that like different spaces are giving students different things. Um, And I I really enjoy that. And I think that that's a really cool um, aspect of spaces that have like those different pods of students. Um, Yeah. And I think, and I think that, you know, regardless of what campus you're on and it's something that I think about all the time that is that pod, like let's say you're on a large campus, mm-hmm. those, those pods of student experiences are there, but are they just sort of hidden, you know, and like, are they tougher to find? Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a small, if you're at a small school, you know, or a community college where like, it's just there, that's, that's, that's all the students that you see every day. Although the students that are coming to you, like, I, I'm not gonna say it keeps me up at night, but like, you know, thinking about, the students that we know because they've reached out to us, but just there's so many that Mm -hmm. like have not reached out and have not figured, have not found that one person, you know, to really connect with, you know, and like, I don't know. It's just, that's, those are the, those are the students that I think about all the time. Yeah. Who are we not reaching? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I I would agree that it kind of like makes me, it makes me always wonder, like, because some of the programming I've done, especially around, like, some of the social justice topics, like, especially around masculinity, like, I'll see some, like, a couple years ago, we did this masculinity series, um, and we had a great attendance for it. I was really stoked. And then, like, the last one we did was on relationships, and someone was in the audience that 
they rubbed them the wrong way and they ended up writing something on some conservative blog that got picked up by Breitbart. And huh. they basically <laughs> said that like me specifically says that men, <laughs> uh, said that I said that men um, are like abusers, basically like all men are abusers. And I was like, that's not what I said at all. <laughs> like, Wait, hold on, hold on. All men aren't abusers. I yeah. Right. <laughs> but like, they just like shared that. And I was like, man, I think that this programming is so great. And then like the student that I've never met before comes through and experiences one of my programs and that's their takeaway. And that like really bummed me out because I'm Mm -hmm. like, I never, I had never thought of this student before. And now I kind of think about this student all the time when I do this programming and who I'm actually reaching and who's sitting in the audience. And like, that's the kind of stuff that like, also makes me like wonder about the programming we're doing, but whatever you can't, you can't please every student. You can't reach every student. And so we should just know. stop doing what we we're should doing. Just, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to quit. All right. It's the music break portion of the podcast, bringing you a song from the new hot Mulligan album, which is called you'll be fine. The song I'm going to play for you is called equip sunglasses. It's a really fantastic track off the album. The album is, a uh, pretty wild uh, emo grunge record um, that reminds me a lot of like Free Throw, uh, bands like that. Um, really just like uproarious, um, fast, noodly tunes. Absolutely love it. It came out earlier this year on No Sleep Records. If you want a copy of it, go to nosleeprecords.com. Get yourself a vinyl copy of it. Get yourself a shirt. Get yourself something to support the band. Support the labels right now. Uh, they need as much help as we can give them. And I think it's really important to give back to the small independents uh, more than going through Amazon. So please take a moment and do such a thing. It'd be really great to uh, give back a little bit, especially during this pandemic when a lot of bands can't travel and a lot of bands can't tour or even sell some of their merch. So just make sure you're you're doing it. Support the band, support the labels. I've been saying it for a few weeks now, and I just think it's super important. So here is Equip Sunglasses by by Hot Mulligan.
that was Equip Sunglasses by Hot Mulligan. Go to nosleeprecords.com and get yourself a physical copy of the album. Get yourself a shirt. Get yourself something to support the band and support the labels. Um, the record is really great. I think it's really awesome. I uh, just got a vinyl copy myself in the mail and I haven't spun it yet, but I'm going to go do that right now, right after this. Um, yeah. Now let's finish out this conversation with Mike Fox. How about it? This is going to be a long one about vinyl. It'll be great. I hope you enjoy. Uh, transitioning just a little bit, I want to have a little bit of conversation on this before we uh, end. Um, you're a vinyl guy. Um, what got you into that? Collecting. Um, I think that, you know, ever since I was a little kid, like music has always been like a huge part of my life. So my parents, like my my dad, like would you know, just all of his stories were like, yeah, you know, I saw the stones on, you know, like July 4th, you know, and like the, he was like fourth, like from the state, like all these. And like, we would just listen to, you know, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all these different things. And the other piece of it is that my parents um, are big, like, antique collectors and like so they go to a lot of yard sales and a lot of like flea markets and stuff and so when I was a kid I would like follow them to all these different places and like I like I knew what vinyl records were at a really young age like like 10 or 11 I I, I did not inherit any vinyl records mm-hmm. um, but like I just liked you know at a really young age that I liked the artwork of it mm-hmm. so like um, I would see like a bin of records and, you know, you're talking like 90, you know, four ninety five, ninety six. you know, vinyl was completely dead on the market. Yeah. Like nobody was printing records. Like, I mean, a couple of places were like, you know, fat records has always been printing records, mm. but, um, you know, it just wasn't a mainstream media anymore. Um, so like I would love like thumbing through, these different records and just like, just to look at the artwork. Cause I was like, I had, my parents had all these CDs, every, every record that I would flip through, I would, they had the CDs, but like, I just, I really wanted like to like, to have the bigger version of the CD just mm-hmm. from an artwork perspective. I didn't even have a turntable or anything, but like when I turned like 14 or 15, you know, I bought my first turntable. Um, it was an, it's, I think it was like an old, like, pioneer that had like the eight track player in it it was like one mm. of those all in one um i got a, a couple of speakers and like and now when i went to like flea markets and yard sales and stuff you know i would start buying records mm-hmm. um people always ask like what was the first record that i bought and i just i i'm 99 sure that it was a copy of um jefferson airplane surrealistic pillow I'm like okay. 99% sure that that's what it was <laughs> because I've always had this like super beat up copy of that. Yeah. And um, I just, I just like, I have this like weird memory that like I paid a dollar for it at some mm-hmm. point. Um, it's a great record. I have a, a new yeah. 180 gram version of it. Yeah. I'd um, imagine. And uh, so, you know, over time, like I just started like building this like small record collection just based off like the music that my parents really liked Um, but then like, as I was able to like start driving and like, you know, going places, there was a record store in Providence, um, called in your ear. And there are a couple of in your ears around Boston too, but the, there was in your ear on Thayer street in Providence and the right across the street was Tom's tracks. And 
like I remember, you know, buying at the drive-in records there mm-hmm. when they came out because they were like the one place that sold new records, mm. you know, because um, I don't even think Newberry Comics at the time was like, maybe they had a tiny vinyl place, but like, you know, I just remember like buying, you know, that's where I started buying new records for like 15 or 16. Um, and then it just sort of like, it just sort of evolved that like my parents had all these, these albums and, and I could now buy bigger versions of them. Like as a kid, like that was literally what it was. So like, it was like putting them up on the wall and like just sort of having them as artwork. And I think that that sort of still drives me to, to buy vinyl today. It's that like the, like if you download an album, like, and now like downloads have like these cool videos that come with them. And even Spotify has these cool, like other artistic features to them. But like, I love that physical, like I love, like if it's a, gatefold like i love opening it and like if there's something else cool inside like if there's cool packaging like or a booklet or whatever art panels yeah or even just a like a lyrics list like i think Mm -hmm. that you know that's something that like gen z won't get to experience is like listening to you know an album whether it's cd or tape or record or even digital and like reading the lyrics along with them, mm-hmm. you know, like I used, that's just what I've always done. So, um, you know, so that was sort of the, the start of where I, you know, sort of like started to understand vinyl and like started appreciating it. And then like, as I grew older, like there were just so many different, um, you know, I started, you know, going to different record stores, like Providence had a couple of record stores that I went to. Um, and you know, just buying new stuff. Um, and then, but, um, I became a mailman. I don't know if you knew that. No. Um, so (laughs) when I was, so when I got to college, I had like maybe like a collection of like, you know, four or 500 records that I sort of toted around with me everywhere. I went, um, moving from place to place in college. And, uh, but in the summertime, um, I worked for the post office and like, I had my own mail route. And it was cool. Like every summer I just, I had this like walking route that was like 12 miles up and down hills that like no regular wanted to have. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. They, they actually called it the widow maker. Give it to Mike. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like I became so used to it. I loved it. Right. So, um, you know, it was an easy, it was, it was a, a routine gig for me. Like, and it was fun. Like I loved it. I got my exercise and like, you know, I love talking to people. So like mm-hmm. as a mailman was like my wheelhouse. Yeah. Sorry. Postal worker was my wheelhouse. Um, and, and so like the word kind of got around like to the other carriers in the office that like, you know, I was into music and like, I would talk about vinyl and like, they were all like, I didn't even realize that that vinyl records still existed. And I'm like, well, they do. And like, cause they, they never got, you know, they're just in different places now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I would hear from different letter carriers that like, Hey, this person has some records in their house and they, they don't want them anymore. So like, I would like after work, go to different people's houses and just clean them out. Wow. Um, (laughs) You know, so that's how I got like a bulk of the collection. And like some of those records I still have. And some of them were like doubles and like, or bought better copies of things since then. And like, but it was just like the base of like, that like music that I grew up on, the classic rock stuff, you know, the psych stuff that from the sixties, like, you know, all that stuff is, I just sort of bought from different people. Mm-hmm. Um, I once got an entire metal collection uh, for 
playing Barney at somebody's birthday party. So like one of the guys that I worked with at the post office was like, Hey Mike, I rented this Barney costume for my kid's birthday party. Can you come and, and be Barney for a little while? And like, I'll give you my collection. And like, he had like, he was a huge kiss guy. So like every kiss record, like every ACDC record, like a ton of other like metal stuff from like the eighties and like, like every Judas Priest album. And like, is that really my wheelhouse? No, but like they were cool. Like I was like, I'll do that. Like that's, yeah. that's awesome. Um, and some of those records, I, I still have a bunch of them. Um, and you know, and now like, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's exploded to it's huge. And like, and I get it. Like people like it, but like, I don't know. Sometimes I see like the prices of things and I'm like, it just brings me back to like when I was a kid and like, my Mark McGuire rookie card was worth like a thousand dollars. Yeah. And now it's like not worth the paper that it's printed on, you know? So I think that like, like I love that vinyl is like back and like it has this resurgence and that it's like, you know, people are into it. And like, cause I, I think that it's important and cause from the artwork perspective and like the, the media perspective, but like when I see like a certain press that's like, going for a thousand dollars because it's green instead of black i'm just like why like i get i get its rarity and there's only a hundred of them or there's only 50 of them or there's whatever number there is but like i just don't prescribe to that area of the collection Mm -hmm. of collecting where like i'm not going to spend a lot of money on a press because it's rare like i'm gonna buy the music because i want to listen to it um so like i get and it's not like I get frustrated or anything, but like it's when I see a band put out 10 different versions of the same record with different swirls and colors in it. I'm just like, what are we doing? Like, why can't we like open up that pressing plant for other artists to be able to like get in line a little bit quicker, you know, very intense. Like there are people who like will get all of those 10 pressings like this band. I'm actually wearing their shirt right now. Silent planet. They just put out uh, a seven cause they're one of their album covers has been out of print for a while. And yeah. on the cover of it is like the color wheel. And so they put out six like of the Roy G Biv colors. And then yeah. they did a splatter pressing as well of 200 each of all of them and they gave one bundle or option where you could buy all of them because they knew that there are variant collectors that will buy all of them. And that blows my mind that people one have the money to do that. <laughs> that that's the key for me. Like it's crazy. It's like insane. It's why it's, and what's wild is like, it's like people in their early twenties that are doing this stuff too. And I'm like, y'all are putting this on credit, aren't you? <laughs> You know, and I'm on like, <laughs> it's exactly right. Like, I'm on like, I'm on these like Reddit vinyl communities where like people are like buying and selling and stuff. And it's like, hey, I need like some extra money for rent. I'm selling this like, I don't even know what, like, I don't even know who these people are, but it's like $85 for like this. Like, I, like what? Number one, where'd you even get that? And two, like you need money for rent. Like, like we got to get our priorities in order yeah. here, friends. Like, so it's crazy. And like, so like I still love it and like you know but I have this like weird thing with vinyl where like I'll get really into something and I need it all. Mm-hmm. So like I it's not like it's not like in my this is one thing that my wife hates about 
you know, my vinyl collecting. Is that like, so I recently watched Ken Burns's country music documentary. And okay. it, I'm, I'm not a huge country music fan, mm-hmm. but like, I love like the history of music and like sort of learning more. And I went down a rabbit hole of like country music records, yeah. like just after buying, like just after watching that. And like, I'm just like, so my want list on Discogs right now is like, just weird country music records that like they Boy Orbison, mentioned. Marty Robbins, Conway Twitty. <laughs> yeah, like for real. Like, you know, I wanted, um, you know, they go into detail about the nitty gritty dirt bands version mm. of Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And like mm. this idea of like, they were the new, they were the new kids on the block in country music. And, but they brought back like all these old timers, mm. you know? So like, I was like, well, I need that. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to have that record. Like I need to go out and buy it right now. Like this is a piece because like, for me, it's like, it's a piece of history. And like, the good thing for me is that as I go down these rabbit holes, like sometimes like you can find these records in the dollar bin and it's Mm -hmm. like jam after jam after jam. But sometimes I go too far. Right. So I, last year I got really into Tommy James and the Shondells. Okay. Um, Something I've never heard of. <laughs> I don't know. See, like, so it's crazy. Like, so I don't, there's a little known fact about music is that Tommy James and the Shondells wrote every song ever. Like, okay. they, so you put out your album a few years ago. Yeah. Six, like all four, like four of the songs on your record were written by Tommy James and the Shondells. Yeah. I don't well, know if you knew that. Yeah. Like, actually, so, yeah. now that you, br- Tommy and the <laughs> Shondells. Okay. Now yeah. I've heard <laughs> So executive like, producers on my album. <laughs> right, exactly. So like they just like they just like a lot of pop songs, like, you know, they wrote I think we're alone now, like that Tiffany made really popular. So they've mm-hmm. got like the original version of that, like Dragon the Line, Money Money, like all these like then it's just good sixties pop music. So like I was down this rabbit hole of like sixties pop music where like I was saying like, you know, the Dave Clark five was actually better than the Beatles and I was trying to like grapple with this in my head because their first two albums are better than the Beatles first two albums. But like for Tommy James though, like he's got these like really solid, you know, like songs like Crimson and Clover and like all these like really solid first albums. But then like he kind of like leaves the Shondells and he puts out these two albums like right after that. And they're just not good. Like they're not good. Like one of them's got dragging the line on it, which is like a, one of his most popular songs but like one day i just bought those two records and it's just like because for me like i was already so far down this tommy james and the shondells rabbit hole that i just wanted to continue like the both albums they're just they're just not great they're just not great but like i just find myself like like hearing a song and being like i need more of that like Mm -hmm. i just i need everything like if you look at my my discogs like collection like the last four, like I've, I've probably bought, like I bought a copy of Bobby Gentry's, um, um, not the Delta Suite, uh, Ode to Billy Joe. Um, I bought like a couple of Dave Clark five records recently. Like I bought a Dave Brubeck record. Like I bought, um, um, what else did I just buy? Hold on, let me bring up my Discogs list. But it's just like, <laughs> it's just like, you know, do I buy new records? Oh, I bought this, like, the um, Lies by the Fabulous Knickerbockers, because it was just, like, one song that I heard where I was like, 
this is just good garage pop from the 60s. Yeah. And like, I want now I, but do I need the whole album? Yeah. No, I don't. But I just like, that's, that's just, but now I have it. And now, now you have it. Exactly. Now um, I have I've got, well, I've got an idea. So there's, the, so you're, you're naming a lot of things that kind of like make me think that you'd really like this new album by this guy named Bartise Strange. Um, I think you'd really enjoy it. Um, I'll send it over to you. It has like a lot of different vibes to it, but it's like, um, yeah, I can't even describe it, but I'll send it over to you because I think you'll really enjoy it. It's one of the most advantage- like adventurous <laughs> albums I've heard all year. It's really cool based on what, what you've been explaining to me. Because yeah, you like a of, lot of different stuff. I think that like I have a very wide ranging eclectic mm-hmm. vinyl collection. Like I've got I would say and, probably the most that I know of. And and you know, and it, it doesn't hurt that, you know, my wife is works in the music business and she mm-hmm. works for a, a world music concert promoter. So, you know, she's bringing home records all the time of like artists that like are just from all over the world that like are just amazing because mm-hmm. and they're presenting them. And like, so we've got all those pieces of it too. But like, you know, you know that I've said this for years and years and years that like everything's going to get repressed. Mm-hmm. And and now I remember like a couple, couple years ago, like I just put out this like record store day wish list. I was like, I wish that like all of these, these five records would get repressed. And now they all have. And like the yeah. last one was, um, dashboard confessionals um mtv unplugged like there you go it's just like so anyway it's like the vinyl community now is like it's so all over the place with how people want to interact with it um which i think is cool and like you can sort of have your own experience with it but for me it's it's never gone off the route of i just want to listen to music on my turntable and like i want to like just go to a record shop and like just thumb through it. Like I don't need to be online at midnight because a variant is, is coming out and like, and Hey, we, we live in new England. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're on, if you're on top of these Newbury comics presses, you could be paying a mortgage. Yep. Like these, like these, like, like limited runs, mm-hmm. you know, if you can get on top of it, and I have a couple of them. And I think I even bought a couple off of you. Um, you know, but these like limited run things that they're like skyrocketing yep. in price, but like, you gotta, you gotta believe that like, it's going to come down to earth at some point. Hopefully. I, I hope mean, so. I mean, it, it has gotten a little out of control. And like, I know that some folks uh, in the vinyl community, especially on Instagram is, is a whole thing. It's like a whole clout thing too. It's like, Oh, I have this and I have that and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but also, like the music matters, <laughs> so let's right. Put, let's put that first. <laughs> right, exactly. And you know, and I like I post the records that I'm listening to, um, you know, on Instagram. Um, you know, I use a couple of hashtags. But like for me, it's just like I kind of want to just like remember what I listen to. So I like mm-hmm. constantly like scroll back through that and be like, oh, I've listened to that in a while. Like, yeah. boom, it's almost like a visual catalog for me. You know, as I'm sort of listening to stuff. I've had like some some grandiose ideas to like listen to my entire collection from A to Z, and like and just spend See however you in many 2024, years. Twenty twenty four, Mike. <laughs> yeah, like however many years, like it takes me, like you know, to do that. And I think I'm gonna do that at some point because in the other piece of it too is I've got some stinkers in there that like mm-hmm. I've never listened to, 
that like I just don't probably need taking up space anymore because mm-hmm. we also recently moved and we we've designated one wall for vinyl and we're actually installing the shelves tomorrow um but once we we're not gonna we're not gonna put records anywhere else so okay. you know I'm gonna have to like thin it out and I think we can fit like 16 to 1800 records in there um which is where we are now <laughs> that's so, so like <laughs> but I, but like I might have to get to a place where it's like a one in one out situation. Yep. Right? So, you know, I, I think I, I think as you know, I'm going to start becoming more conscious of you know what I have and what I'm really listening to because like there's somebody and it's not just to, for me to get rid of it. There's somebody out there that could want it. You know, mm-hmm. like that could want this like record that I don't listen to very often. Yeah. You know, and you know, hopefully I'll get records from them someday too. Hmm. Well, Mike, this has been a really great conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed ending this on vinyl because that's where I was hoping we would get eventually. Um, but yeah, uh, if uh, folks can get in touch with you, how would they do that? How would uh, what, if you want people getting in touch with you? Yeah, I am. Um, I use the handle underscore Mike Fox everywhere. Um, so on Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at underscore Mike Fox. Um, I got into a Twitter battle one time with Michael J. Fox about oh, <laughs> his, his handle was uh, the real Mike Fox. So I responded to him with like, who do you think you are? <laughs> like in a joking way. And he responded to me that it was like the only handle that was left because he was like so late to Twitter. And for years, years, I got like hate tweets and messages like from people that were like defending him. Oh my god! And like, and I was like, people, like, we do you realize that we have the same name? Like, mm-hmm. it's just like a fun thing that like I was trying to do. But like, I remember this one lady was like, my husband in parentheses, an ex NHL player, close parentheses, once met him in the locker room, and like, and he was a great person. And I'm like, oh my why god. are you sending that direct message to me right now? Like. I'm not disputing that he's a good person. <laughs> like we just have the same name <laughs> people. You have to realize that. So, um, at underscore Mike Fox, I'm on Twitter and, um, and, uh, I don't use Facebook much anymore because, yeah. uh, you know, it's, uh, Why? I think that, I think it was actually might've been one of the guys on pot save America that was like, uh, <laughs> Facebook, the grandma photo sharing service slash, right-wing propaganda machine there you go. <laughs> like, like if you need both of those things in one place it's fantastic for you <laughs> like, so you yeah. know it is what it is but yeah that's how people can find me i'm at bristol community college doing my thing i'm uh I'm, i live in the providence area and uh yeah Ho- hopefully when we can be in human form again we can be in human form again together yeah that would be super cool so like, we can socially humans. distance hang out sometime who knows maybe we'll come <laughs> yeah. down yeah, you guys, uh, you got to come down. That'd be great. All right, man. Take it easy. That's it. That's the end of the podcast. We did it. Another one down. Very thankful for Mike Fox spending some time with me to chat about all things vinyl, all things pandemic and education and authentic leadership. Very fantastic chat with Mike. Miss him a whole lot. Hope to see him in human form again soon. Um, 
Mike has done a lot to support me in my work as a public speaker, and I'm really thankful for him being willing to come on to this so you can learn a little bit more about him and so I could learn a lot more about him. That's what I really enjoy about doing this podcast is I end up learning a whole lot about my friends and just people, some people I've never even met before, just learning all sorts of stuff. That's what we all got to keep doing is just keep learning. I think that's what we're put on this earth for, and that's what I think that this uh, podcast is doing for some some folks. So um, hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, if you want more conversations like this, go to connectedu.network and learn about all the great content and uh, educational opportunities that are out there in the world that we provide through that network of educators and podcasters. Um, and yeah, if you like the music on the episode, go to nosleeprecords.com uh, and look up Hot Mulligan. Uh, look up their record. You'll be fine on any streaming services, wherever you get music, wherever you put it in your ears. Um, just listen to the new album. You'll be fine. Listen to their other records too. There's a lot of great stuff that they've put out so far. Um, this is just the one that I'm hyping up today, uh, or on this episode. So I hope you enjoyed the whole thing. I'm going to, uh, leave you with another little bit of a hot mulligan song to close out the episode and that'll be it. Uh, hope to be back, uh, very soon with another new episode. And until then, let's get to work. In the backyard, where the grass and spider webs grow up next to us, say, what's your interest? Tell me how you plan to give up on all of them. Hey, put me there.